Turn with me uh, in your Bibles. Turn with me to Mark chapter 16. And I'll have the text up behind me as well. But Mark chapter 16, we're nearing the end of the Gospel of Mark in our study. Uh, now two, over two years of studying the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. And been thankful that we can go through this gem of a book among the Gospel writers. And we see here the theme of the Gospel of Mark, which he presents Christ as the perfect servant of God. Uh, and that term servant is found in the scripture and it's also seen as we go, have gone through this that Jesus set about himself on this uh, ministry, the three years of ministry on earth, which is what the time frame that Mark covers. And he presents them as the one who is the perfect, obedient servant of God, uh, the Messiah, God the servant. And we also see through the miracles how he proved that. We come to Mark 16 and we have the death of christ the resurrection of christ we began looking at the resurrection last week and if people are familiar with any bible accounts at all they're usually familiar with the birth of christ and the death and resurrection of christ because if they attend church somewhere they would probably show up at least a couple times a year christmas and easter and around those times that often you're hearing messages on this though it be familiar uh, i think it's important that we we continue to look at these things and examine them and as already has been our prayer today, that we, uh, we are reminded of even the old things and the new things too. And that it would stir our hearts up by way of remembrance in that. Well, we begin in Mark 16, verse 9. And it says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. <clears throat> and she went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept, and when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. And after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, and they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and the hardness of their heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Let's pray. God, again, we open up your word, and we ask you to open up our hearts and minds to receive your word, that, Lord, we would uh, walk closer to you today, we would trust you fully, and, Lord, I thank you for the ministry of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we ask now, Lord, you would just bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We have here this account, and it is the ministry of the resurrected Jesus. And these few verses that we just read show some important truths about why that resurrection is important and why Jesus, or when Jesus rose from the dead, what he did. One of the things you'll find is that from the very moment of that resurrection Sunday, that early morning, when the women gather there at the tomb, and they go there and they find the tomb, uh, the stone has been rolled away, and the tomb is empty and there's much confusion. And you can read the gospel accounts in each one of the writers as they put that forth. And each one includes extra details that some don't have. And, and, but all include the main thrust of it, which is that Jesus is not there. That he's risen. And there is that dialogue that occurs there. And you'll find that right from that moment when Jesus rose, throughout the whole remaining part of that day, 
He was busy. He was about his business. He's continuing to do that. He didn't just rise from the dead and then sit there for a while and think, wow, that was an awful thing I went through, that now that I've, I've been dead for three days and I'm, now I'm alive, I'm going to just take it easy. I think most of us would do that. But you know what? Jesus never just stops. I'm glad he doesn't stop. By the way, the Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power. And I'm thankful that by him all things consist. I'm thankful that even though Jesus died in, in bodily form, in the flesh, he actually died. Do you know that? But he didn't cease to exist at the crucifixion. He, matter of fact, he continued just like all of us will continue when we die. Except he died and he continued. And the Bible uh, didn't leave us in this point. Some said, well, if, if Christ be God, then who was in charge when he died? Well, the answer is simply he was in charge. He never stopped. He never stopped. But his body rose again. He raised up his own body on the third day on that Sunday morning. And it's important because there is a ministry of that Sunday, that first day of the week as the Bible describes it. And there are three major things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings for us. Number one, his resurrection brings great encouragement to his followers. If you read the, the account of the Gospels, you find out that Jesus, uh, he rose to a group of scared and discouraged disciples. That's what you find. His followers, as in keeping with the prophecy, says that if the sheep are, or the shepherd is smitten, that the sheep would be scattered. And that's exactly what took place on that Friday when Jesus was arrested early in the morning hours. He was brought before those different councils. He was tried. And at every stage of this his followers, even the closest of his followers, began to scatter and hide and go into the shadows and go underground, so to speak. And they would lock themselves in rooms and those kind of things. They were scared. They were discouraged. And then that would continue all the way up to the crucifixion and when the shepherd was smitten and the sheep were scattered as according to God's word, his prophetic word. We find on this day there were discouraged disciples. We find on this day there were fearful disciples. I don't know about you, but sometimes I end up in those kind of situations where I'm a discouraged disciple of Christ, and I'm a fearful disciple of Christ. I sometimes find myself in different times of the day in that. Sometimes weeks where I'm discouraged. And the only way out of that is when you encounter Christ. and You realize that the resurrected Christ is at work today. And he's at work in our hearts and our lives in this world. He is at work. Verse 9 there of Mark 16 says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And and that's, by the way, in I jumped ahead to John. It's not in Mark's gospel. All right, But you know what? I'm piecing something together here. You go from Mark 16, 9 to 11, and then you go to John chapter 20, verse 10, and that's where I'm at. She went, and I want to make sure I'm at that, uh, verse 11 there, and you find out, it says, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. I like that. I like that. And it says, And she saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And I jumped ahead. I was on the wrong slide there, Sam. So just hold on. I'll grab it here from on this. And uh, 
What you find here is Mary Magdalene piecing this together from Mark's gospel. You don't get all the full picture, really. You have to go to John's gospel, and you find out she came to the tomb, and she's weeping. That's, that's discouragement. That's sadness. Later on in Luke chapter 24, you find two disciples there on the road to Emmaus. And as they're going along to Emmaus, they, uh, uh, the, Jesus comes up next to them, and the dialogue is recorded there. And he says uh, to them, why are you sad, right? Why are you discouraged, <laughs> is the phrase that he uses there in talking with them. They're sad because, and they explain it, they said, are you not a stranger in Jerusalem these days? Are you the only one that doesn't know, in other words? Are you the one that's clueless <laughs> uh, about Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet in mighty and word and in deed? And they explained that he was crucified and that this is the third day. And certain women went to the tomb and they found his body missing. Those disciples were pretty discouraged as well. Well, Mark does not include the full dialogue of Luke chapter 24, but he does allude to it. And we'll look at that here in a moment as we go down through that. But you find out in John in uh, chapter 20, And in verse 14, he says this, Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. This is her, she was discouraged that there was no body and here she is weeping. This is Mary Magdalene. She's the first to the tomb among those, those women that had come. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teach her. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Those are the other details that John includes in this same account here and the resurrection of jesus brought about great encouragement to his followers you see that first day when mary shows up there and she goes there she's not very uh, encouraged is she she's weeping because his body's missing he's died and all his followers were in the same situation they weren't there at the tomb but they were, the one, they were finding themselves in the same thing. And we find that on that morning. And we won't turn to these passages, but you can look in Matthew 28, and you find in that uh, gospel record, it says there were several women that came that morning to the tomb. Mary is the one that's in focus here in the gospel of Mark. It's also in the gospel of Mark where we find the account of Mary who had demons, and she was Jesus healed her of the demonic possession. And so she's part of the miracles of Christ and the deliverance of Christ in his three-year ministry when he was here. In Luke chapter 24, verse 1, we know that too, and also in John chapter 20. We find in Matthew 28, verses 2 to 3, that we find out that an angel rolls away the stone from the tomb. So you wonder how that big stone got moved. Well, the Bible says an angel did it. We know that there were Roman guards that were posted, and they panicked and fell as dead and then fled. And we get that from Matthew chapter 28 again. The account there. And then we find these uh, women arriving at the tomb. They find it open and empty. And the gospel writers, every one of them, uh, actually 
makes that clear distinction. We find that there were two angels that appeared to the woman inside the tomb. And that's Matthew 28, verses 5 to 7. Also Luke 24, 4 to 8. Talk about those angels that were there. And then we find the women go and tell the disciples. And the disciples do not believe them. Those are the ones that were the closest followers to Christ. They did not believe them in all of that. And yet, he appears to Mary. And, you know, when I look at that, I think... Uh, he was gracious to appear to her, Mary Magdalene. The Bible says there in Mark that he first appeared to Mary. So she's the first one. And I thought of that for a moment because we know the word actually in the Greek for first means the first as in place of honor. She was the one that he chose to appear to first. I wondered about that. If I was, I'm not Jesus, I'd not even, no way, you know. But if I thought like, you know, thought that he could think like Jack Karen, right? Glad he doesn't do that either. I, I would say, man, who would you appear to if you were going to raise from the dead? And make the most impact in the, in the world today. Who would you appear to? Well, I could think of a lot of other people. Back in Jesus' day, I'm thinking about those that he appeared to just the, day, the few days before when he was in trial. Remember the high priest? Imagine if Jesus appeared first to the high priest. Would the high priest have believed an impact? No. Actually, Jesus said, even if a man comes back from the dead, they won't believe. That's what he said. He didn't choose to appear to the high priest, Caiaphas. He didn't go to Pilate. And, you know, Pilate was the man in charge in that region. Think of that. He could have gone to Pilate and said, hey, guess what? You know, you killed me? I'm back. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Whoa. That would bother you. Or how about Herod? You remember he had to stand before Herod? Because... Herod was in charge of that area up where Jesus was from. And he had stood before Herod and they put Herod's robes on Jesus and and mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And in a few hours, you're going to be dead. And they spit on him and they treated him terribly. And on the third day, he rose again. He could have gone back there and that would have been a wake-up call for them, right? He doesn't. He chooses to peer first to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was that woman that the Bible describes as a woman. We, we are introduced to her first in Mark's gospel as one that was possessed of demons. She had opened herself to some kind of spiritual activity that had allowed a strong you know, spiritual element of satanic nature come, it came upon her. And she was possessed. Demon possession. And the gospel of Mark shows that. And he was, we find her... Uh, Jesus casts out the demons and guess what she's from there on a follower of Christ a close follower and it's Mary who is Mary Magdalene who's there and she's the one that is found at the feet of Christ and by the way the testimony of her in scripture is from the other people they knew her reputation and you can piece her reputation together she was a sinful woman she was not somebody that if you were in polite company you would go and associate with Why would Jesus appear to Mary of all people? He didn't know who she was, where she was from. Yet he chose Mary Magdalene to do that. I really believe that's the way God is. And by the way, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, talks about the wise and the powerful and all those things. And it's those things that God has not chosen, by the way. He's chosen the foolish things of this world. 
to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak things of this world to confound that things, those things which are mighty. Mary was a weak vessel. Mary was a woman that no matter what her reputation would have followed her, even after faith came into her life, even after there was a transformation, people would have probably said, no, nah, it can't be. And yet Jesus validates her by first appearing to her. And I'm so glad for that. It also tells me something about Mary in this, that all those other ones, the other disciples, uh, the ones that had seen him do these mighty miracles, the ones that had, who had been there when Mary was delivered, the ones who had been there when, uh, remember, the box, the alabaster box was broken, poured out upon him, and he was anointed. Those that had been with him at the breaking of the bread and, and, uh, or, or the feeding of the 5,000, uh, and then later at the Lord's table. And you, they, those different miracles that took place, all those, those, the time when the winds and the seas obeyed his voice, Mark chapter 4, we, we read that. We read all those different things. And where were those disciples? How about the ones that stood with him at the transfiguration? They saw his very glory. Where were they on the first day of the week? They weren't there. Mary was there. And Mary has the wonderful privilege of being the first person in all the world to know that Jesus is risen. The one who finds out firsthand where he appears to them appears to to her oh that's amazing by the way god's like that if you'll draw close to him he promises to draw close to you that's the invitation of scripture back there in exodus and we won't turn there but in exodus chapter 3 we find moses he's up on a mountain 3,500 years ago now and god says this to him in exodus 33 21 Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back parts, and my, but my face shall not be seen. Moses could only view as God passed by his veiled glory. Moses wouldn't even have stood a chance if he had been there and seen the full glory of God. He would have, you know, been gone. God was gracious to him, but he showed him. And I think of that because the Bible says of Jesus Christ that he is the very image of God. He is the one who has the glory of God. John writes in chapter 1, We beheld his glory even as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you know what? Mary Magdalene got to see him face to face first in his resurrected body. His resurrection. Well, number two, his resurrection is based on indisputable evidence. I say indisputable. There are those that dispute it. But I think if you come to the biblical and historical record of Christ, uh, really there's no doubt there was a man named Jesus Christ who lived. He influenced the world. I, I would say he influenced the world more than ever, anyone else before him or after him. Man doesn't like to admit that. I remember years ago, and I probably have used this illustration before, but years ago when uh, uh, 
computer encyclopedias started coming out. I go back a ways with computers. In the early 1990s, there was a company that began to market with their personal computers uh, a CD, and it was an encyclopedia on it. And I remember I got one, and I got that disc, and I stuck it in, and, and I remember looking at this encyclopedia of the world, you know. And there was a neat little option. There was a timeline of history, and you could print it out. And I said, that'd be pretty cool. And I went down, I looked at the different history, and it, it went back to ancient history and, and you know, uh, thousands of years B.C., and it went through all these major events that took place and, you know, places like the Far East and China and all this and these dynasties that arose and all these different people. I didn't even know most of them and all that. I come down nearing the date of going from B.C. down to year zero or right around the year zero, and it skips over and it goes into Roman history and it just keeps on going and there was no mention of the birth of Christ whatsoever and I thought you know what what foolishness we date our calendar and our existence here on the based on the birth of Christ and you don't even mention him in the history of the world I remember printing out that and it was in a dot matrix printer with the paper connected you know took a while and I printed out a list of the timeline of the world it would stretch down this whole aisle right here and I, I wanted to make sure that wasn't on. I remember looking at it and I said, no, Jesus isn't even mentioned. And yet his, the evidence for his life, his death, his resurrection is indisputable. There's more evidence for that, far more evidence than any, we would say, ancient world history event that has taken place and just the scope of that influence. Verse 12 of Mark 16 says, After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. And that is Mark's summary of Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. It's a lengthy passage there in Luke. And those are those two on the road to Emmaus. And there we know that Jesus comes alongside them. The Bible says their eyes are held that they should not know him. He's just a stranger on the road to Emmaus, is what the, the, you, know, you could imply there. And that's what they say. Are you a stranger in Jerusalem? And you know what Jesus does at that point? He proves his resurrection and who he is by going back to the scriptures. The Bible says in Luke 24, he began with Moses and the prophets and he expounded unto them all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they take this journey of about seven miles distance from Jerusalem to Emmaus and they walk along, there's Jesus next to them. He's giving them this Bible study. I just would be so excited to be able to walk with Jesus for seven miles and let him do a Bible study about himself. Imagine that. They didn't even know it was Jesus. But he goes and he, he walks them through scripture. And he shows where the Bible, thousands of years before, showed that he would be coming. That the seed of a woman would someday come and crush the serpent's head, right? And that's Genesis chapter 3. That's the book of Moses, the first book of Moses. And he goes through those books of Moses. And then he comes to the, the prophets, right? David, who prophesied of one who would come someday... And you go to Psalm chapter 22, and Psalm 22 is the crucifixion, isn't it? I mean, it reads just like the gospel account. 
written a thousand years before the crucifixion, and yet it's prophesied about in such detail. Or you come to Isaiah 53, and there you have the prophecy of the one who would take the, the, bear the marks, right? By his stripes we are healed. And in Isaiah 53 there, it talks about the suffering servant. Isaiah was not talking about the nation of Israel. He was not talking about himself. He was talking about another, and it's clear. It's messianic. It's about Jesus. It's about Messiah. Not only that, but here those things were talked about. And the psalm, the second psalm, talks about uh, the resurrection, by the way. That's prophetic as well. And there are several other passages that you could look at. But you come to the New Testament and you have the record of the Bible itself. And you have the actions of the early church and the apostles. And there's no doubt, if you laid out the the evidence, the what we call the historical and really uh, the, the legal method of proving something. When you go to a court, you talk about it, they call it the legal historical method of proving something. For instance, if there was a crime that was committed, you can, you can in a laboratory go and reproduce certain elements of a crime and say, this happened and it, because we repeated it. That's called the scientific method of doing something. For instance, somebody's discovering if someone was shot or killed or whatever and there's a blood splatter. I'm not trying to be gross here. They can go in a laboratory and recreate that kind of to say this is the angle in which it took place. But you can never reproduce the actual event because the person's gone, right? Or the crime is over. It was a one-time event. You can't do that. Nobody can go to court today and scientifically prove a case against somebody. They use elements of science. But they cannot completely do that. So they come with what they call the legal historical method of proving something. You investigate things like eyewitnesses. You look at motives, the actions of people. Why are they doing this or why did they do this? And you look at the evidence that's laid out as well. And by doing that, you recreate a case. And the burden of proof hopefully shifts in favor of the truth, right? And that's how we prove things all over the world today. Legal historical method of proving. The resurrection is often picked apart by people because they say you can't prove it scientifically. You can't prove it scientifically. I hate to tell you, you can't. If anybody can reproduce the resurrection, let me know, okay? In a lab somewhere. But you can prove it very clearly using the legal historical method of proving something. When you look and you investigate, what did the scriptures say prophetically? Did Jesus accomplish that? Yes. Okay, what did he do historically what do the writers in the early first century write about this person jesus did they talk about a resurrection oh yes they did what does the bible itself say and then what are those the the closest followers of christ those that were the disciples did they really see a resurrected christ interesting because day one and when the resurrection day we find very discouraged scared disciples they're fearful of their very life and yet after they encounter the resurrected christ and know it's him They're totally different. They go out and they literally face down angry mobs. They lay down their lives in martyrdom. They go out and they stand before kings. And they do so with such boldness that the world can't even explain it. And the motives behind it is because you could could say this, bringing all these cases, this evidence in, you can say they really saw the resurrected Christ. If they knew this was just a sham, if this was just a story they made up, they would have made it up and run out of there and been gone. No one would go out and give their life for a lie they knew was a lie. These guys would know the difference. 
Anyways, I lay that out just as, as a kind of an introduction, I guess, to this point to say that the resurrection is based on indisputable evidence. The Bible itself says this. <clears throat> it says in Mark, uh, let me go here, in Mark chapter, I mean, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. This is the Apostle Paul writing in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And he says this, He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Jesus died exactly according to Scripture. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul's laying out a case for the resurrection. He's using the Bible to do that, by the way. <clears throat> Verse 5 says, And that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve, Cephas being Peter. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. When Paul is writing to the Corinthian church somewhere around 63 AD or some, well, 60 AD, somewhere in that range, um, he's writing and he's saying, there are people walking around right now and they're part of the group that saw the resurrected Christ some 30 years before that. They're still alive. You can go find them. You can interview them. And there weren't just a couple. There were 500 of them. And then there were the disciples, those that were there. And there was those women. The evidence is overwhelming. If I had a trial going right now, I was presiding over that trial as a judge, and somebody, you know, uh, the two sides of the lawyer, law team come in, and one of them brings in 500 eyewitnesses to an event... Some of them had nothing to do with each other. They weren't in cahoots with each other. They weren't part of the same club. They weren't even part of the same region. Some of them were uh, of the religious zealots like Paul the Apostle, you know, Saul of Tarsus beforehand. And he was hated Christians. And you have these and all. And they see the resurrected Christ and they come in one after the other and they testify of that. You'd, you'd have to say that's, that's pretty powerful evidence right there. For someone to come along and say, the resurrection is just a made-up myth, and you guys that f believe that are just crazy or fools. They are, are actually more foolish because they, they deny the obvious. They deny the obvious. The resurrection is based on indisputable evidence in that. Uh, and I'm, I'm thankful that God clearly does it. I have lots of references. I won't turn to all these, but I, I think of that because... Over and over and over again, uh, you have that. And I don't know if I read this one, but verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 15 says this. After that he was seen by James, or after that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles, and then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. As Paul's writing this, he was the one born out of due time. He's numbered with the apostles, and yet he's one that was not part of the inner circle of Christ, right? Those 12 minus Judas, the 11, <laughs> one was false. And you say, well, who replaced Judas? Well, Paul did. And you have Paul, and he was, remember, after the fact. It was after he was out persecuting Christians. Acts chapter 9 is his conversion experience. And he sees the resurrected Christ, Meets him face to face on the road to Damascus. And he'd never be the same. Later he would write to this fledgling church in Corinth. And he always referred to himself as the one who was 
born out of due time and he was the least of all saints and he was the chief of sinners very humble man Paul was and there's no doubt that when Paul he had seen the resurrected Christ because he goes from this man who is Saul of Tarsus the numbered with the zealots they were the ones who were the keepers of the they were the Pharisees and a particular group of the Pharisees that believed they needed to take things into their own hands and be the protectors of the law and he was going out, he was binding up Christians, putting them in jail. He was torturing them. He was consenting unto the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. You read that. And he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. That's what Acts 8, 1 says, against the church, against the Lord's people. And yet God gets a hold of him. And all of a sudden, you see him going, and as Ananias comes to him in Damascus and says, Brother Saul, brother. Only Christ can take that which is enemy and make them brother. He changes things, doesn't he? There was an encounter. Point number three about the resurrection ministry of Christ is this. His resurrection brought an uncomfortable encounter. It brought an uncomfortable encounter. You find that in verse 14 of Mark where he says this. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. These guys that had been there in his teaching ministry for three years, all right, most of them near three years, and they had heard Jesus talk about his resurrection. Remember, they were there when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And he was referring to the temple of his body. The Gospel of John records that for us. He made those kind of statements. He told them, actually, that that was what's going to take place, that he was going to die, but that he would come again. And yet they didn't believe. And they didn't believe when Mary and those women showed up and said, we've seen the risen Christ. They didn't believe. They didn't believe when those two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, they show up. After going to Emmaus, sitting down with Jesus at a meal, and in the breaking of bread, their eyes are opened. And he immediately vanishes out of their sight. And you know what they do? After walking seven miles, they get up and they run back. And they go back to Jerusalem to find the other disciples. And you know what they say? Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us, by the way? Burning hearts will do that. When your heart's on fire for Christ and you get excited about him, you'll go anywhere. You'll do anything for him. And you know what? They do that. They go back and they're welcomed by the, I think Adrian Rogers calls them the gnat gaggers. They strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, right? And we all can be that way. They go, oh, yeah, right. You know? Come on, quickly get in here and lock the door. They're going to get us next. No, but Jesus is alive. We saw him. No, we don't believe him. We have the dialogue of Thomas. He's often called Doubting Thomas, remember? But he's the only one that's talked about, really. But all of them were doubting. All of them. All of them. <laughs> they didn't believe. They did not believe Jesus had come back from the dead. And until he appears in their midst, he doesn't. They don't. They don't believe. You know what Christ talks about? And again, through the Apostle Paul's pen, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And you know what? When you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, you have a radical change that goes on. Not only are your sins forgiven, not only 
uh, are you, you know, as you trust him, your, your penalty of your sin is removed. But you have, you're given a new heart. The Bible calls it a new birth. And there should be a new creation in those things. Those old things pass away and those new things. By the way, back to the disciples. I want to com- compare that between those two verses. Because in Mark 16, 14, where it says that he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. If we had just left them there and the gospel Mark ended right there, we would say, man, these guys are just losers. They didn't get it. But Jesus wasn't done with them. I'm thankful he's never done with us, right? He encounters them. He seeks them out. He goes to the place they're at. So I don't know if that's proper English or not, but that's, that's where he went. He went to this locked upper room where they're hiding. He just appears in the midst of them. That's what the gospel writers say. I love that. You know, it tells me some cool things because the resurrected body is not bound by walls, but yet it can be felt and touched and you can eat, and, but yet not bound by material things. That's, Jesus says we'll have a body like uh, unto his. Uh, wow, that'll be cool. Uh, but you know what? Let's go back to this because he rebukes them. And the word for rebuke, it's a strong word. It means to take someone to task. It wasn't just, I'm a little bit you know, annoyed by you, or I'm a little bit uh, saddened by your actions. You know? It's saying, I'm going to come here and correct you. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was encountering them. And when you encounter Christ, it's never comfortable. Not when you're running from him. <laughs> Not when you're hiding anyways. And that's what they were. It was an uncomfortable situation. And the encounters with the resurrected Christ always caused people to, to get closer to him or to move further away from him when you find that. You think of the Apostle Paul later in Acts chapter 9, and there's the Apostle Paul, and he, he sees the resurrected Christ, and he's been knocked right flat on his back in the dirt. He's been blinded. And God, the, the Lord Jesus, says this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, Lord, he knows he's the Lord. He's using a very, very, very clear word when he says that. He acknowledges that he's God. And he says this, uh, he, he says, um, what will you have me to do? Right? Or, or later on he says that, but uh, the Lord says, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, the pricks. In other words, the Lord had him in an uncomfortable position, had knocked him down, had taken him and made him pinned. <laughs> he was uncomfortable. It would be just like the Lord to do that with Saul of Tarsus, who was a Jew of Jews, who was of the tribe and stock of the tribe of Benjamin, right? He prided himself on being Jewish. He prided himself on being a member of that tribe that was blessed he prided himself on all these things and he was part of the pharisees and the zealots and all that and you know what in an instant he was brought back right back there to the father of the jews the, i think of jacob himself or the father of israel his name remember changed to israel but he was name was jacob and he wrestled with god one night the whole night Saul didn't know it, but he was wrestling with God, and God pinned him, just like he did Jacob centuries before. He pinned him, and it was only there after Jacob had been with God, and he understood who he was, and had seen him face to face. He names the place Peniel, because uh, I have seen God face to face. And there, Jacob, his hip is touched, and he walks with a limp from there on out. But God blessed him and brought forth a great people. 
And Saul had to go through a very similar experience. He was brought low to be made right. You know, encountering God can be very uncomfortable. Encountering him brings us to a point where we realize we're sinners. We're undone. Three years before this, Peter was a fisherman. Remember, the Lord comes to him and says, follow me. He says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You know what? Encountering Christ is is an uncomfortable thing. But it doesn't need to be. Because the Bible says we can turn from our sins. We can repent. We can trust Christ. And as we do that, guess what? You're born again. Your sins are forgiven. And you're given a new nature. Just as the Apostle Paul would later write, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And you know what? Out of Mark's encounter here, and we see this as it's written, his resurrection, it took these guys and and women as well that were discouraged and sad and fearful, and he encourages them. He does so not just with some mystical element of mystery that takes place, but with evidence that is clear. And his encounter was real. It was so real that it changed their lives from that moment on. And truly, they could later on say this verse, and they could say it from a personal aspect. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Can you say that? Have you encountered Christ? Has he made you a little uncomfortable, maybe? (laughs) You know what? You need only to turn to him in faith. That's the invitation that goes out. Today you can trust him as your savior, your personal savior. He's a resurrected Christ. He's raised up never to die again. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. And I need not even fear or face uh, eternal death and separation from him because he's paid a way for me to be in his presence. Isn't that great? It's through his grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful today that we have the word of God. We're thankful that we have this account of the resurrection of Christ, and yet there's really so much more to it than just those few verses. And Lord, we ask that we would go forth here today, first of all, knowing you. And I pray if there's anybody here that's still a stranger to you, that even today they would bow their hearts before you, their knees before you to say, Lord, I believe and I trust you. I turn from my sin and I make you my Savior. Thank you, Lord, for that. That's a promise you give us today. And Lord, we can face whatever comes today because of the grace that you've given us in Christ. Thank you for your perfect work, not only at the cross, but in the resurrection itself. Thank you that you're ascended on high today and that even now you are sovereign in all the affairs of man. And we just commit all this to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.